Welcome back to Fitness or Fiction, a podcast dedicated to cutting through the hype of the health and fitness industry. Every week, we dig into a new topic and help you wade through the real information to make solid decisions on your fitness journey. Dr. Wee Yong, thanks for joining us today, sir. My I pleasure. Like doctor too much, I should. Doctor, yeah, you earned that title. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, so typically our podcast, what we're talking about is things that people need to understand better or get into a little bit deeper for a, for a good conversation. So today um, it's probably going to circle around MS a lot, I would assume, but um, what our main goal is, is to try to get out more information for people. And recently I've talked to a lot of people that they're really not sure what MS does and all this sort of stuff. So um, thanks very much for being here. I think this is going to be really enlightening for a lot of people. So, um, well, you know, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. I hope this is going to be useful and informative for your followers. I, I think it is going to be knowing who you are. So that I think is a great place. Um, so for a lot of people, uh, Dr. Wee Yong, um, would you mind giving us a little synopsis of kind of who you are and what your current position is? Sure. I am a scientist, a neuroscientist that works on the brain and spinal cord. I'm a professor at the University of Calgary in Canada. I do research into um, the brain and spinal cord, and I address my questions focus around multiple sclerosis principally, but also a little bit of brain tumors and stroke. Very cool. Um, how did you end up going into that field? What was the process like that kind of drove you there? Well, I've been involved in research since my PhD days at the University of British Columbia. I started um, working on a type of brain cell called oligodendrocytes during my training. And because the oligodendrocyte is a cell in the brain that is destroyed in multiple sclerosis, that led me rationally to work on multiple sclerosis. And I've been in that space since 1986. I've been involved with MS research for a long time now. I was born two years, two years after that, <laughs> 88. You're so young. I was three already. Yes. It's a baby. What, when you were um, studying, did you want to work in research or did you want to work with patients directly? Like when you first were going through school? Well, you know, like many people growing up, I had aspired to be a medical doctor very early on in my um, life. Um, I actually, you know, tried to get into medical school, was not successful. And so went into what I thought was the next option, which was uh, graduate school. But I ended up really liking research. And so no regrets. I've been in research all this time. I work with a lot of medical doctors. I teach uh, medical students these days on uh, multiple sclerosis I, and I'm very pleased to be where I am. So I tell my um, students these days that life can take a lot of twists and turns and you go with the flow and you can often end up in a very good place. 
That is awesome. I was, this was one of the questions I was most interested in, like why, why MS and that kind of focus on the Olga dendrocyte um, driving you there makes, makes a lot of sense. Okay, so having been involved in research as long as you have, what are some of the like highlights of things that you've accomplished in the uh, industry that you're really proud of? Well, first of all, let me just talk about the advancements that the field has made in general. Sure. You know, when I started researching in MS, we had no medications that could improve the long-term outcomes of people living with MS. Now there are over 20 medications that improves the prognosis of individuals with MS. So that's a huge advancement. There has also been a lot of progress in the area of trying to understand why the immune system becomes dysfunctional uh, in individuals living with MS. And there we ourselves have contributed original findings to help explain how some immune cell types become overactive and then make their way into the brain and spinal cord to produce injury. So there's a lot of uh, improved understanding there. These days, the field is also moving towards trying to repair the lesions, the brain lesions that have formed. You know, how can you help with regenerating some of the elements that have been destroyed and can that improve long-term outcome? And in this area of repair, we have also made contributions along with others in the field as well. Uh, another area that we have uh, contributed uh, to has been in the context of repurposing medications that are currently available for use in humans for different indications. And because of the prospect of affecting aspects of MS in a favorable manner, we have been involved in this repurposing so that a given medication, particularly a generic medication that is very affordable, can be repurposed now for multiple cirrhosis. And you've discovered some stuff that's applied yourself, have you not? Like you were, you repurposed an acne medication, didn't you? Yes, we have. Um, so this acne medication is called minocycline. We understood from some of our laboratory work that minocycline, which is commonly used for acne, um, has some impact on immune cells and that they can help correct some of the immune abnormalities that occur in MS. We initiated that work in models of MS and upon favorable, favorable findings, we were able to translate that to our uh, clinicians, uh, one of which, one of my collaborators took that into a clinical trial and it actually evolved all the way to a phase three definitive clinical trial in which we were able to show that minocycline is useful in early MS to prevent the acquisition of a next attack. Wow. So, you know, in that regard, um, this is a cheap generic medication that 
place, some places in the world have been able to offer um, individuals with early MS um, as a potential therapeutic to slow the evolution of uh, progression. Wow, that is amazing. Um, that is very impactful work. Um, I'm very happy to be talking about it. My, my mom had a friend pass away from MS and they're really, back when she passed away, there was nothing to be done. So it's really exciting to talk to somebody making a difference like that, but it's kind of a nice- I should, I should also bring up another one that is uh, you know, more topical and in the news recently. And this involves hydroxychloroquine Hydroxychloroquine is an anti-malaria medication. Uh, it got black, a lot of flack during the early COVID period because it was touted as a, a medication that could be useful for COVID-19. But we have been working in the lab with hydroxychloroquine for many years because we found that it was useful in correcting abnormalities that a particular cell in the brain, the microglia um, has. And so we actually took that from favorable results in a model of MS, more recently with one of our clinicians into a trial in primary progressive MS. And the results are favorable. It's a small trial, but it did show that over one year of treatment with hydroxychloroquine, the number of individuals with primary progressive MS for which there are no good current treatments um, expected to progress was actually reduced in number. So basically it's a promising finding. It needs to be affirmed in a larger trial but uh, it is in the right direction that we seem to have been able to slow progression of disability for a type of MS, which has been very difficult to treat. Well, the primary progressive type is, is very challenging. I think that goes into our next question really well. Which what it is. <laughs> yeah, Doc, I, I have a really basic question for you, and I want to hear from you directly. Like, exactly what is MS and what are the, like, the symptoms that people experience? And like, how common is it? Like, is it like one out of 100 people in your experience get it? Like, just kind of the basics for our audience. Sure. You know, multiple sclerosis is a condition that affects the brain and the spinal cord. It results from immune cells that become, for whatever reason, overactivated. And some of these immune cells now gain the capacity to enter the brain and spinal cord to now produce injury. I have to say that immune cells normally are good cells that we all have and which help us fan against infections and help us to heal from an injury. But sometimes some of these subsets of immune cells can become overactive. Um, and when that happens and they go to places in large numbers where they're normally excluded from, that becomes a problem. So in multiple sclerosis, 
we have a condition in which some of these immune cell types, like I said, um, become overactivated, enter the brain and spinal cord in large numbers. They produce molecules that now begin to damage the cells that we have in the brain and spinal cord. Depending on where this happens throughout our so-called central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, that will dictate what the symptoms are. Commonly early on in MS, the optic nerve is involved and immune cells make their way there, disrupt the optic nerve. And a common symptom then early on is visual disturbances. But you know, you also have um, immune cells affecting parts that control movement. And so you end up with some, you know, movement abnormalities, etc. So multiple sclerosis um, symptoms then is fairly broad um, and, and can involve, you know, a range of symptoms, neurological symptoms, depending on where the injury is occurring in the brain and spinal cord. Mm -hmm. So would it, would it be safe to say that some of the most common stuff is like balance disturbances, vision disturbances, abnormality in movement and spasticity, and then of course, um, digestive and, and um, yes, functions as well? Yes. Okay. I should also, you know, answer your other question about how common MS is. Yeah. It's actually fairly common. In Canada, there are about 100,000 individuals living with MS. Across the world, about 2.8 million individuals. In Canada, it is estimated that every 12 minutes, an individual is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So, you know, fairly common. It's also somewhat geographically distributed as well, meaning that yeah. there tends to be fewer MS cases in equatorial countries, more in temperate countries. Ethnic origin also plays a role as well, tends to be more in the Caucasian population than in the Oriental population. And amongst the progress in understanding MS has been, you know, an understanding that genetics do have a, a, a small role um, and that some environmental factors likely to be encountered in certain regions, you know, may increase the odds of developing MS. And then there are also some protective factors as well. One of the thinking behind why there are fewer MS cases in the equator is that in the equator, there's a lot of ultraviolet B radiation. Yeah. And ultraviolet B radiation generates, is, is the main way in which we generate vitamin D in us. So that has led to the idea that there's protective environmental factor. Yeah. Uh, that generates vitamin D and vitamin D is a protective um, factor that prevents immune cells from going awry. Yeah, it's interesting. I was 
MS has become more prominent in my personal circle. Like I had a client that I was training that had MS. And then when Curtis got diagnosed, it started just popping up more and more around me. And I started researching it lightly. And like, I, I found that it was more prominent in Alberta, in Canada specifically, like Alberta had a much higher rate, which was kind of confusing with the environmental factors and why it would be so concentrated in certain sections, right? Yeah, you know, ultimately to get MS, a number of things come together, you know, the genetic predisposition, small risk, the exposure to something in our environment uh, that could be, you know, certain viruses, for instance, perhaps some pollutants, the lack of protective factors, like the lack of vitamin D, because we live in an area in Alberta in which uh, for nine months of the year, we are actually ultraviolet B deficient yeah. because of the angle of the sun and therefore vitamin D deficient. And then there's also the role of the things that we eat that could also send immune cells down certain pathways. Yeah. So a number of things come together ultimately to lead to MS. So for me, um, the next question is kind of important because I, when I got diagnosed, it was a real sucker punch. I was trying to figure out what was wrong with my leg for a long time. I get an answer that I didn't want to hear. And you were kind enough to sit down and talk to me and give me some support. And in that time, I have a really good neurologist that you worked with a lot, uh, Scott Jarvis. He's, he's awesome. But I found the process of, of being diagnosed was really tough because there's, even if everything was done well, there's a really steep learning curve and it's something that you have to kind of come to terms with and figure out how you're going to handle. So before we get into what do people need to know and all the other questions, um, you've already had a good impact for me, you know, just sitting down and being like, listen, I don't treat MS, but here's some really good stuff that you can look into. That was hugely impactful for me and my family. Um, my question is, um, what impact are you trying to have in, in this field? You're obviously get some fulfillment out of it. And you're obviously good at it. Um, is there any kind of specific thing that you drive towards that you're trying to have as far as an impact? Well, you know, um, if I could be um, immodest, so to speak, um, we, we, we see, we hope to make impact in a number of ways. Uh, one is the cure, you know, and cure means different things to different people. For me, a cure is trying to slow the progression of disability. And that to some extent, you know, we have helped with making, we have made con scientific contributions to try to um, bring forth certain strategies to slow progression of disability. Um, the work that we do, uh, thankfully, is internationally recognized. Not that that's important to the ego, but certainly with international recognition, you become a thought leader. You can help sort of move the field towards areas that perhaps are more important to address at the moment. So that's another area of impact that I see it. Training the next generation is also um, and, um, one of the measures of 
impact and I, we think we have done well that way. I, I have about 30 of my past trainees that are professors around the world, many of them working on MS, you know, trying to move the field um, with the work along the lines of trying to understand how to promote regeneration of the brain and spinal cord. Um, we, there we are also thought leaders and um, trying to move the field along besides contributing. So those are some of the immodest uh, contributions, if I may say so. To be more immodest for you, uh, Curtis, we're already winning and my goal is to stop progression and fix the damage. Already on the path though. <laughs> now the challenge, it, it's still very challenging though. I mean, you know, we are up against a very formidable enemy, so to speak. Um, but as a field, we are making progress. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the diagnosis of MS is one that is um, doomsday, so to speak. These days, there are many, many options for those diagnosed with MS, many medications to slow the progression of disability. Um, and in some individuals prevent disability. Um, and there are also research by us, by others uh, around the world to try to do better um, one is in the area of earlier diagnosis. The earlier you diagnose, the better the long-term prospect. And that's because of uh, that diagnosis now, a lot of damage has already occurred within the brain and spinal cord. So the earlier diagnosis, the better. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I hope that we can continue to make progress along the lines of trying to regenerate the nervous system so that the damages that have already incurred can hopefully be mended to some extent. Well, now would apply to a lot of other conditions as well. So that's huge. Um, just before we go to the next session or section, um, with the what is MS thing, there's a few different types. There's four types, are there? Or there's more, but four main buckets. Well, yeah, we you you have the uh, classic relapsing remitting. Um, you know, most individuals will go through a relapsing remitting MS course, in which there are relapses, and then one remits, is stable for a while, a second attack, a relapse occurs, then remits. This is relapsing remitting. Many individuals then progress to steady progression from relapsing remitting. So that would be secondary progressive MS. Um, and then you have primary progressive MS where the progression of disability continues unabated from the beginning. Um, that said, the field is also trying to slowly move away from you know, this bucket, so to speak, because of the recognition that the injury is continuous 
even if it is not manifesting as an obvious attack. Um, and that has implications in our thinking about how to treat MS as well. Very cool. Nice. Yeah, it's it's kind of surreal to me. It feels like a little bit of a nightmare disease when like my friends are being diagnosed with it. And, you know, we just don't have the answers on where it comes from or how do people get it? Like, it's very, very strange. So like, with that being said, like if somebody is diagnosed in your experience, what's like the best things they can do to try to slow the, the process down, I guess? Yeah. Um... We have many, you know, see a neurologist. Um, and most of the neurologists, the majority, actually, I would say all the neurologists that I know are very good at what they do. You know, listen to them. If they prescribe a disease-modifying therapy, that's a good thing because there's now overwhelming data that disease-modifying therapy uh, therapies help the long-term prognosis and cause of MS. Um, and then there is also the lesser known impact of diet um, yeah. on immune cells. It is very clear that diet affects immune cells, but it may do so differently in different individuals. Yeah. So usually, you know, if I'm asked, there's data for certain diets, perhaps being more pro-immune boosting, if you like, you know, less favorable, like saturated fats. Uh, but generally speaking, that while there's data, there hasn't been large-scale studies. So it's very difficult to be definitive and say, hey, you have this ethnic origin, this particular lifestyle, you have to go on this type of diet. Um, so the guides are not quite there, although there's this appreciation that diet matters. And usually I, if asked, I would say whatever makes you feel good, you know, stick to that. Yeah. And then exercise is another area, you know, that you folks champion. And um, it is very clear that exercise is not only good, physiologically for the entire body but exercise affects immune cells mm -hmm. exercise and and that's another um, contribution that we have made in the ms literature at least using models of ms and that's exercise repairs the brain so while it's recognized that exercise generally is good and uh, can help tame the abnormal activation of immune cells. We contributed by emphasizing that um, exercise helps with brain repair processes. Um, we did a study in a model of MS in which we found that short exposure to exercise changes over 100 proteins within the spinal cord. That's just amazing. Yeah. Um, we are trying to move forward with a concept called MET-SERCISE, 
which is medication plus exercise. So this combination is exercise. The idea there is that exercise improves all these proteins within the spinal cord and brain and make those more favorable for a repair medication to act upon. Mm. So we're trying to enhance, if you like, the potential repair capacity of not only exercise, but also of medications that we are trying to bring forth as potential pro-regenerative uh, medication. So yeah, exercise, very important. That's what we would tell uh, you know, individuals. It is good for your MS. Um, and also to access um, sites such as the website of the MS Society of Canada, where one can look at you know, what does one do? A lot of information out there. So diet obviously plays a role. I, I can kind of speak from my own experience on this one. Um, since my diagnosis, I haven't had any new relapses, which is good. I get that confirmed for the past year in That's May. Great. Um, I've found that changing my diet has been key and the way that I feel is my guide, as we discussed, has been a big deal. So I went keto, I felt pretty good. Um, I read a book called Overcoming MS by um, George Jelinek, and he was recommending going vegan and I felt really bad on that. And then I got some sensitivity testing back that I'm sensitive to gliadin or gluten and uh, dairy. So basically I'm kind of put those two together and I don't have gluten or dairy and I eat pretty low carb. And that's been really transformative for me. So I think there's definitely something to diet but like you, I don't think it's one size fits all. As far as exercise, where's the research at on types of exercise? Because in my experience, if I do something that's long-term, the heat beats me up and lots of reps just don't feel great. But if I do, I can do heavier or more intense bouts that are short with longer rests. And I find that makes a big difference. And even if I want to do deadlifts and I'm feeling jittery that day, I can go and do something power-based like kettlebell swings and it'll settle that down. Um, is there any good research going on about what people should do as far as exercise modality with MS or is it is the research kind of limited to just kind of, well, exercise helps? Uh, no, there's you know, good research ongoing about uh, types of exercise. Um, um, intense interval, um, uh, well, intense versus less intense, um, interval trainings of, you know, high intensity, rest, um, next high intensity, um, shorter versus longer. A lot of those research are occurring in individuals living with MS. Um, and some of these studies also have brain MRI and other tests uh, like cognitive function tests. Um, they are all small studies for short, short periods, you know, months, um, but they generally are in the right, um, in, in the same direction. And that is the more exercise, the higher intensity, the better. The problem there is, you know, as you point out, 
the again um, intense exercise is not for everybody. And how do you maintain an exercise regimen for uh, in individuals for a long period, particularly for those who have many challenges to begin with? And this um, body heat that is generated, you know, very much an aspect of MS as well. Um, the inability to control body heat. And then there has also been recommendation of uh, wearing cooling jackets during exercise. I have a colleague at Memorial University in Newfoundland, which is actually one of the best centers on MS exercise research in the world. And that they actually train their progressive MS individuals in a cool room. In, so the room is set to about uh, 18 degrees and you know it's heavily physiotherapists aided. They are doing exercise in a cool room. But ultimately though, it's, um, uh, it's hard to maintain. And for now, the data are all in the same direction of exercise being good. Like I said, you know, more exercise, the better. Um, but it is hard to, you know, practice. The National MS Society of the United States recommends in a consensus statement by expert, 150 minutes a week of exercise, preferably if one sweats, you know, gets it to the point of some sweating. But otherwise, if not, um, at least, you know, physical activity, 150 minutes uh, per week, at least. I have a silly question, just in regards to like exercise, this is probably for both of you, I guess, but um, just in regards to like exercise and heat and cold, like, has there been any research done on how like, like heat shock proteins, like going in like an infrared sauna would affect like the immune system in regarding to MS or you know, it's kind of hippie, but like even doing like ice baths in order to cool the system and shock the body. Like, is there anything like that going on that you're aware of? Uh, that I, I'm not aware of in terms of, uh, you know, shocking the body. And um, no, I, I'm not. But I was going to say that uh, another direction that um, some labs, including ours, are taking is to try to understand why exercise is good for brain repair in our case in particular. Um, it turns out that exercising muscles will secrete a number of what are called myokines. Um, some of them have been identified to be exercise induced. One of them is irisin, for instance. And this protein can actually travel into the brain and help with some of the processes within the brain. So that's only one molecule. There are other molecules coming from the liver, the kidney during exercise that also um, travel to the brain as well. So we're trying to identify what might be some of the exercise induced factors that perhaps could be turned into therapeutics. Yeah. Because 
you know, it's going to be challenging to keep an individual on an exercise regime forever. But if one wants a target brain and brain repair, might there be a cocktail of naturally produced exercise-induced factors that is the cocktail to take, for instance? And is there a cocktail of molecules to tame the immune system? So that's that's another route that uh, is being explored. I really think that it's gonna come down to exercise stimulus in a lot of ways. And I could be wrong, but the way that I feel about it right now is um, we know that there's different stimulus that we can apply towards exercise and there's neurological stimulus, which is, which would be either power or strength. And one is more motor units. The other one's getting motor units to fire faster and then mechanical damage, mechanical tension, AMPK, lactic and oxidative, knowing that there's all these stimuli. Actually, I think that if, if it can be done to get testing done with people that have MS that uh, we could identify a stimulus. And that's, that's kind of a hope for the future for, for me, because I think that somebody diagnosed that doesn't have the access and experience that I do for exercise. It's a, it's a tall order to get exercising on top of everything they're dealing with. And I've already said to you that you probably know more about exercise-induced well-being in MS than many researchers, and that we certainly can use your expertise. Yeah, I think that uh, more conversations need to happen for sure. I'm, I'm excited about helping with that, hopefully. So. Um, on our podcast, we often deal with uh, misconceptions. We talk about red flags. Uh, we, we try to get clarity for people where it's challenging because without context, clarity is really challenging and the internet presents lots of opportunities for that. Um, the classic, here's five exercises to fix your back. And I'm like, well, you've never met my back, slow down. Um, so are there any misconceptions or people thing, people um, doing things to try to help with their MS that you're like, that's a misconception, it's not worth it? Well, there's certainly many misconceptions in, in the medical field of perceptions of, uh, you know, what could be useful, you know, the beast thing, for instance, the uh, unfortunate CCSVI, Venus uh, maneuver that, you know, many, ma many misconceptions is very easy to spread. So CCSVI uh, is when people were having, uh, was it a shunt or something put in to expand their yes. the yeah. circulation to their brain? And yeah. uh, that, that turned out to be not good research. So that's, that's, that's one right. That's what I ran into early on. I was like, really, is that a thing? And you were like, no, it's not a thing. <laughs> well, you know, CCSVI was this, um, um, was, was first introduced by an Italian doctor who is actually not a neurologist, uh, but his wife has MS or had MS. I think, I'm not sure if she has passed on, but, um, he made the claim that uh, MS has, uh, uh, is a condition of venous drainage from the brain. And, um, and he had this procedure in which you open up the brain. Um, well, 
lack of venous drainage from to the brain. Um, and anyway, he opened up, used a stand and opened up the vein feeding into the brain and said that his wife recovered substantially. And that was picked up by actually television channels, including actually one in Canada, W5. I remember seeing the episode because the reporter showed a supine MS individual that then had the Lazarus effect of walking immediately after um, you know, that uh, venous opening. That then led to many individuals having their veins stented, opened up. Um, and since then, though, studies that are done in an objective, blinded manner uh, have not shown any benefit at all. And in fact, many of those shuns resulted in troubles for many individuals, uh, you know, veins collapsed, um, you know, the, the stand moved somewhere else, you know, a stroke occurred. So it's very, very easy to get misconceptions these days, unfortunately. And there are many of those in the literature, uh, in, in the internet. So on the other end of things, um, what is most new and promising in research? What are the, the kind of directions that you're really excited about in finding um, value in? Well, I think these days, there's a lot of work going on in the area of trying to slow progression or prevent progression. Um, and that can take the form of medications to reduce injury um, or medications to uh, improve repair or earlier diagnosis to slow in a long-term uh, uh, to treat early. Um, a lot of uh, research around which medication to go first. Do you hit the immune system very, very hard at the beginning upon diagnosis? Or do you sort of gradually, you know, go from a low-grade, immune modulator to a very potent one successively. So a lot of uh, work going around, uh, around those areas. Also, there's the possibility of um, preventing MS in those at risk, those who have not yet developed MS, but you know perhaps have some genetic predisposition. Um, so, that is also an area that is moving along. Lifestyle factors, smoking, salt being undesirable um, in MS. Quite interestingly, uh, and this is not to promote it, but um, there was a study out of Sweden in which those that consume a lot of alcohol you know, seem, <laughs> seem to have uh, reduced no, right, right, right. Yeah. So <laughs> People that consume alcohol, pardon me. Yeah. They drink lots of alcohol. What's the outcome? Um, so they segregated uh, countries like um, Sweden, Denmark. They have a registry that is lifelong um, 
from birth all the way to death. Um, and whatever medication that you have taken, you know, lifestyle, et cetera, all of these are entered. Um, so they were able to do this uh, retrospective study based on what is in their database of who ends up with MS. And then going back, what was their alcohol consumption like? And those that were deemed to be heavy drinkers, those were the ones that uh, had the lowest propensity of ending up with MS. That's weird. So you did not drink enough. <laughs> you need to spend more weekends out here. That's your yeah, fault. Apparently. You got to go to the bar more often. <laughs> oh, nice. Like I said, this, that's not a lifestyle that we should promote, but it's interesting. Yeah. So I guess just to wrap up, like, is there anything that um, people can do to like help move things along? Anyone who wants to help? Um, well, you know, um, I would say donate to the MS Society of Canada. Um, research is a very expen ex expensive enterprise. The MS Society gives out a lot of grants to enable research across the country. Um, and it's, it's with research dolls that enable research that will allow knowledge to be gained and improve upon. Well, um, thanks very much for coming out. I think we could probably do another episode on just supplements. So I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole too much today, but um, thanks very much for spending your time with us. Um, I think that there's lots of people. I've, I even had somebody reach out last week that they just got a diagnosis and wanted to talk to somebody about it. So I think there's a lot of people that need what you're doing and uh, you're very appreciated for doing what you're doing and spending your time doing that, not only in the research environment, but actually spending time like this, presenting it at uh, different events and getting the, the word out on what this is, what people are dealing with and, and how to meet it somehow. So thanks very much for being here. Yes, sir. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for this conversation. Yeah. All thanks. the best. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks for joining us this week. We appreciate your support. If you enjoy this episode, we'd love it if you would subscribe, follow, and throw us a like on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts.